and welcome to episode 98 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for everyone else who likes going out on the stars. My apologies, Shane, my voice is a bit rough this week. Uh, so how was your week? Uh, it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, busy at work, uh, which I don't know when that will ever end, if that will ever end. But, uh, you know, our weather really improved here. And I was able to get out observing one night, which was kind of fun, although not the best conditions. It was still nice to be outside, Yeah. Um, you know, when my breath isn't fogging up my glasses and, you know, you're you're not really battling the uh, the elements as much at this time of the year when it's you know pause, plus temperatures above freezing. Yeah, I, I was out in my driveway. Just uh, I, I didn't have any any optics or anything. I was just looking at uh, the the uh, close approach of Mars to to the Pleiades star cluster. But uh, what mm -hmm. were you looking at? Um, so I, I attempted Sirius B again, or, or you know attempting the Sirius A B split. Uh, with the Takahashi 76 millimeter. So pretty small aperture, I think, for that split. Um, you know, most yep. recorded observations are 100 millimeters or larger. Um, so I was unsuccessful again. Seeing was not very good. The wind was right in my face, probably about 25 kilometers an hour. Um, so I think that kind of mm -hmm. contributed to it because it actually, like, Sirius didn't actually look too bad in the sky um, in terms of like it's flickering and pulsating. So I thought the seeing conditions would be better than they were. Um, but I, I think the wind kind of created some localized seeing issues for me. Um, mm. But the other thing I did that night was uh, like I bought that um, uh, Pentex uh, SMC 40 millimeter Kellner. Um, it was made, I mm -hmm. think in the eighties or nineties when, uh, Pentax released their 0.965 inch, uh, orthoscopic eyepieces, which are, you know, very well renowned. Uh, so this Kellner was kind of the wide field addition to that set. And, uh, I picked this up over the winter time and really haven't had an opportunity to use it because just, you know, as everybody that's been listening to this podcast knows, we haven't really had much opportunity to observe. Um, so anyway, uh, mm -hmm. I, I plugged that into the telescope and man, are the views ever crisp through that eyepiece, like right to the edge. Really? Um, it is incredible. Oh. Yeah. Um, now I'm not shocked that it was crisp to the edge, uh, because at that focal length, you know, I'm running, what am I running F12 or something like that? Um, so, you know, these older eyepieces do perform well at longer focal lengths. Um, but like, you know, the, the field of view is actually just a touch larger. Uh, I think I have to do a little bit more playing around. Um, but it's right around the panoptic, maybe just a hair bigger, the 24 millimeter panoptic. Um, obviously really? though, with a lot less magnification, you know, but yeah. hang on. I thought this was like a 0.96 and I I've looked it up here and it's, isn't it a 0.96? No, no, it's actually, it's, it's a bizarre eyepiece. It's like one and a half inch, <laughs> um, is, is the native oh. barrel diameter that came with it. Now you can unscrew the, the original barrel off of there and it's a 36.4 millimeter thread, um, which is very common with the Vixen and Takahashi telescopes of, of old and even of new really. Um, but what that does, so I have a inch and a quarter barrel, 
with 36.4 millimeter threads that I just put onto this 40 millimeter. So I converted it from inch and a half to inch and a quarter. So it would fit my, my focuser um, or my diagonal. And uh, I was good to go. So like if I actually operated this thing at one and a half, I would get a little more field out of it. Like with the inch and a quarter, the field stop is kind of fuzzy and I know I'm cutting it off a little bit. So mm. very interesting eyepiece, super light. Like this thing is, I need to, I should probably get out my wife's kitchen scale uh, that she uses uh, while baking. But um, uh, this thing is super light. You know, if you wanted a, a light wide field, well, you know, kind of wide-ish field eyepiece, about as wide as you can probably get in an inch and a quarter. Wow. I don't know if you can do any better than this one. Now, I guess yeah. the, 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 I'm just, the trade-off sorry, I'm just kind of looking at it online. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a, just like looking and it seems like different people have kind of done different things. This person, um, I guess you can, you can find two inch adapters for this outside the USA. So you could, I guess, theoretically get a two inch adapter and then use it in your, uh, mm -hmm. so what's the apparent field of view on this? Well, Kellners are usually like 40 to 45 degrees. Um, so, you know, I'm guessing it's like probably in that 42 to 45, somewhere in there. Okay. And what's um, funny is I'm looking at an, an old ad on it. On, you got to hear this. I'm looking at all that on Astromart. I mean, it talks about, I'm going to read the whole thing, but it says something about the material it's made out of. And it says, uh, excellent dimensional stability and is characterized by its high strength, hardness and rigidity down to minus 40 degrees Celsius. And I was like, you might not cut it for us. Be careful with that in cold weather here. Like, and that's no joke. Like we go below minus 40 here. Sometimes you and I have observed at minus yeah. 42. So yeah, yeah. yeah, that is funny. That is funny. Um, I, I actually, I do have the, no, that's fine. I, I do have the two inch barrel for it as well. Um, okay. My plan is to test it against the uh, 41 millimeter panoptic. And obviously the, the field of views will not be the same. You know, the, the panoptic will be much, much wider. But what I'm very curious about is the light throughput uh, comparison. So, um, you know, I want to frame an object that fits the field of view of the Kellner and then look at that object with both eyepieces and, um, you know, just see if the Kellner maybe provides, like I, I'm thinking some nebula is probably what I would target and just see if the Kellner maybe shows a little bit more, uh, maybe more extent, maybe a little more brightness. Uh, just because there's less glass, so more light should hit your eye. Um, uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm very curious to test that out, but that'll be more of a dark sky experiment uh, in the coming months. So I'm just looking, and I see that they, uh, they actually make a 60 millimeter version of that too. Yeah, that's exceptionally rare. Exceptionally rare. Now, uh, I can't remember. I think I maybe told you, um, I, I have a 60 millimeter Kellner, <laughs> um, oh, really? not the Pentax. Yeah. It's made, it's a Seiko. Now back in the day, like Unitron, um, made a 60 millimeter Kellner. Uh, I think somebody else did. I can't remember who though. And this Seiko is basically one in the same. Um, it's a two inch barrel. It's a what's big the, eyepiece. Two inch barrel. <laughs> Yep. Hmm. Now the issue is, uh, I should, uh, go ahead. 
I was going to say I should I should uh, get that from you sometime. Borrow it. I could put a sixty millimeter on my sixty millimeter refractor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, the Which end to look through? I can't decide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've bought and sold hundreds of used items, and just about every single transaction has been wonderful. This one, the Seiko, the 60 millimeter Kellner was the exception. Um, one of the questions I always ask when I'm buying an old eyepiece is, is there any cloudiness or scratches on the lenses? And because um, that, yeah. you know, especially the cloudiness, that can be, a, you know, something that kind of destroys an old eyepiece over time as moisture gets in there. And uh, the seller told mm -hmm. me, no, everything's great. And uh, so I was excited, uh, received the eyepiece. And on the top glass element is like cloudiness, um, but like it's on the surface and I can feel it with my fingernail. Like it's kind of rough, almost like the coating was disrupted. And uh, I've tried wow. everything to clean this off and I can't, I can't correct it. So I've contacted a few um, like old telescope lens restorers to see if uh, they would help me out. And uh, uh, one, one of them doesn't do anything with coatings and the other one is yet to get back to me. So this eyepiece may be just uh, oh, I get a, a lost cause. I get a guy. I get a, oh. I get a guy for you. Yeah. He'll probably do it, it for free too. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Okay. I'll, I'll not, I'm not going to publish his, his name yeah. on a podcast that 300 people now listen to every two days. Um, he'll be overrun. Um, but he's, he's an amateur. He doesn't do it professionally, but his, his part of the hobby, you could have him on sometime, but his part of the hobby is, uh, is like the building of the optics, like really at, at like a very extremely high end level. Like he did at one point sort of have like a side hustle, uh, in the optics business, but, but I think he just does a regular job for the most part and decided that, uh, he just wouldn't, but, um, yeah, anyway, um, so yeah, we'll, uh, I'll, I'll see, uh, send you his email address and you can reach out to him. But the last time I sent somebody to him, like he recoded a mirror for them and you know, that was like, he didn't charge them for it or anything. So oh, wow, he just likes to do that stuff. That's, that's his sort of bit from the hobby. But, uh, anyway, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Uh, I, I don't know that he works on lenses, but I, I kind of feel like this would be his bag. He's, he's made six inch refractors. So Hmm. This, this shouldn't be too, too far off. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he couldn't make it any worse. So I wouldn't care if he experimented on it and if he failed. Oh, well, it's not like it's really all that usable right now, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. I got to ask, though. So, like you're talking about this, and I Googled it, and it looks like there's, there's a couple different versions of the K40. There's one that has this sort of orangey red stripe mm -hmm. around the top mm -hmm. and then like a bit of an eye lens. And then there's one that almost looks like the old fashioned um, ortho or Kellner or Hygens, like where it has sort of like a, like a reverse volcano top, looks like a mm -hmm. crater top. Um, yeah. And I think that's the one that you have is, is that sort of cratered top. No, actually I have the, the orange stripe one. Um, the orange stripe one Oh, you one do? Is, oh, so yeah. that's the the orange stripe one is the desirable one um it i i think the one with the white like the the volcano top one i'm not sure that one has the smc coatings um and it it okay ba based on what i've read i've never looked through it based on what i've read is that it's a it is a lower quality one it's not quite as flat across the field oh. um not as sharp to the edge so 
if you if you're looking for the Pentax uh, uh, Kellner, try to get the one with the orange stripe. Although it is a little rarer, I believe. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do have a, like no, I was I observing found, a little yeah. bit over the winter uh, with my Vixen 40 millimeter Kellner. And um, it's it's really good too, to be honest. Um, I'm quite impressed with these uh, longer focal length Kellners. Um, I think they're fine eyepieces. And I, I, I don't believe anybody uh, could do wrong by having those in their kit. Uh, again, they're so light. Um, they provide a real nice view. Hmm. Cool. Very cool. All right. Did you ever buy that 25 millimeter TMB? I did. Uh, it should be here on Wednesday. Oh. Um, um, unless the, I think I saw the ad for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I'm excited to receive it. Uh, it's a pretty rare eyepiece. They don't come up for sale very often. And uh, when this one, when I saw this one, I just figured I had to jump on it because, you know, sometimes you can't wait for opportunity to arrive at the right time. You just have to take advantage of it when it comes. So there was two 25s up. There was, there was that 25 TMB. And then I think there, there was a Zeiss yeah, um, yeah. 25 millimeter as, as well. I think the Zeiss was even more expensive. Yeah. The Zeiss was like another 300 US dollars. Um, and it's from the first, mm -hmm. so Zeiss released, well, I guess Bader made uh, Zeiss Abbey Orthos. Uh, there was a series one and a series two. Uh, that 25 millimeter, I think it's still available actually, um, is from the series one Zeiss Abbey Orthos. And it's a, it's a very desirable eyepiece as well. Wow. That's, yeah, I, I only own one eyepiece that cost in, in this realm. Um, but it had to be a wide field I could really use with, with glasses and get a lot of use, which is the uh, Duck Tear uh, 12 and a half millimeter, 84 degree, um, which I think is, is really good, but it's always like, like I, don't, I don't typically spend that much on eyepieces. And I hadn't actually, when I bought that, it might, is it the last eyepiece I bought? Anyway, it, it might be the last eyepiece I bought for myself, not, not to give somebody. And uh, that was two or three years ago anyway. And I hadn't bought an eyepiece in probably half a dozen years prior to that. So I'd saved up my money for a long time and they had, they went on sale, which they, you know, how often eyepieces go on sale, especially a custom, you know, German import eyepiece. And uh, so anyway, I was like, well, it's on sale. I, if I'm going to buy it, now's the time. So I, I sucked it up and bought it and uh, it's good, but it's kind of like, I don't know that I can spend that much on eyepieces because I don't know. I think I get more enjoyment out of the observing than out of, out of the eyepiece. Like as, as cool as that eyepiece is. And, and I, I have it like sitting up on the shelf to look at because I, I couldn't afford to buy art for my office after, after <laughs> I bought that. And, uh, and it is, it is cool to look at and it's made out of gunmetal. Um, and that's cool too. Like, so it has this sort of almost like distressed metal look to it, although it's, it's sort of homogenous, but, uh, it's a cool eyepiece and it works well, but yeah, at the same time, they, these can get really expensive. eh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they can. Um, you know, and, and uh, I guess we'll probably get into it a bit in the next episode when we talk about diagonals, but it's all about that entire optical path. You know, to me, if you're, if you're buying a premium telescope, say like a Takahashi, 
um, and you're putting a real nice diagonal in there, um, you know, the next, the next step in that path is the eyepiece. And I think, you know, uh, you should probably try to get as, as good as you can. Um, now we've also talked about this at length that, you, you know, once you get up into the upper echelon, the, the, the separation between a good and a great eyepiece is not a lot, but on those great nights of seeing, no, um, they really do yeah. separate themselves. And, uh, you know, that's to me what it's about. Um, I've, I've been under the skies during those amazing nights of seeing, and those are memories you have forever. So I, you know, when those come, I want to have yeah. as good as I can possibly have to enjoy, you know, those views. And, you know, yeah. the other thing too, and, you know, it, it is true. Go ahead, Chris. I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I bought last this past year, I bought a 1.6 works as 1.65 uh, Nikon. I think it's the IEC Barlow. It goes well with your five millimeter eyepiece <laughs> that I no longer have. Um, but that, that, that Barlow works uh, well with my Pentax three and a half. And, and it's not a cheap Barlow, I think, uh, in, into the few hundred dollar range and the, the Pentax is a few hundred dollars. So, um, you know, that, that's, that's a lot of, of money in glass, you know, that I, that I bought in two separate purchases over the course of 15 years. Um, but together with my TAC 100, um, on really good nights, like on the best nights, I was able to run those together in, in the TAC, giving me whatever it was, 356 power, something crazy like that. And, uh, you know, you, you can see extremely fine detail on the surface of Mars with that. So it, it's one of those things where, you know, pe people might say that a four inch telescope probably is, is seldom going to do, uh, close to 400 power. Um, you know, but, uh, but lo and behold, I mean, if you're right, like if you do line up the optics on those really good nights that are rare, you, you will be able to run that power. For sure. You know, and the other thing too, about a, a 25 millimeter orthoscopic eyepiece going for, you know, the same price as uh, high end wide field eyepieces. I think a lot of astronomers look at that and say like, are you nuts? Like, why wouldn't you get the wide field eyepiece? And, um, uh, you know, the, I kind of talked about it already, but like the simple glass just provides a more contrasty view usually, uh, provides more light throughput. So you're probably going to see your deep sky object um, even better through the minimal glass. Um, Bill Paoloni uh, and I exchanged a couple messages in a, in a, a, a forum on cloudy nights. Uh, it was in the Kellner thread. Um, and um, he, like I mentioned that I want to test these Kellners on deep sky objects just to see, you know, how they compare to complex wide field eyepieces. And he said he sold a set of SMC Pentex, SMC orthos, which are highly regarded as, you know, great planetary high contrast eyepieces. So he sold a set to this person and Bill asked him, you know, oh, you, you know, you must be into planets. Um, and, and the guy said, well, actually I'm not, um, I'm buying these because he's doing the Herschel objects. And he said, there's nothing, he, mm -hmm. he was a big dog guy. He said, there's nothing better than a simple ortho on deep sky objects. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a little bit of, um, uh, I don't know. I don't know if there's that full awareness out there that these simple eyepieces, um, you know, are more than just planetary eyepieces or they can be anyway. And, you know, the other thing, so this 25 mm. millimeter ortho that I, that I will be receiving, 
um, provides a, oh crap, I can't remember, but it's over a, a one degree field of view in my uh, 76 Takahashi. So yeah, um, I went into Sky Safari, my planetarium software, and just quickly ran uh, how many objects are um, uh, brighter than magnitude 10, deep sky objects, brighter than mag 10, but are greater than one degree in size. And um, there's 63 mm -hmm. of those. So um, hmm. when I plugged in, when I plugged in uh, the actual field of view for this Zeiss or this uh, TMB 25 millimeter, um, there's only 28 mm -hmm. of those objects that I won't be able to, or 28 of those objects will exceed the field of view that this uh, orthoscopic will provide. So I don't feel like I'm really mm -hmm. missing out on too much. Um, and then, you know, the other side of that is it's lighter. Um, if you stick with inch and a quarter, you know, the filters are cheaper, the diagonals are cheaper. Um, the only thing that sort of sucks with a, a narrower field of view is if you're into star hopping, um, the wider field of view makes star hopping a lot easier and um, maybe a lot quicker mm. too. So there is a bit of a trade-off there, but um, anyway, that's my case for having a, you know, a nice set or, or even a few, um, you know, simple eyepieces um, like orthos or Kellners uh, in the collection. Um, there's a, don't overlook them. There's a, there's certainly some value there. And, in, I, and I in the, in the, in the now world of, I was going to say in the, in the now world of non-fudgeable tokens, who, who can criticize someone spending a little bit more on an eyepiece? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that NFT blows my mind. I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around it. But um, anyway, I think <laughs> you own the uh, original digital content. Yeah, 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 that's true. That's true. Uh, I think we have a bit of a delay going on here, Chris. So um, I don't know if there's anything we can do to overcome yeah, that. I know. But, it, yeah. Just talk it through. Yeah, for sure. So I think you've been looking at a, a new finder, potentially. You were sending me some links on a ASCAR little finder slash telescope slash guide scope. Yes, lots of slashes in there. It's just like a horror movie, except with optics. Um, so what I've been looking at, and I, I've been kind of wanting to buy um, or get a, get a good right angle finder again. So I have... I was going to say I used to have, but I do have a, a, an original or near original University Optics 8x50. And they used to call them a MISI, which is a correct image uh, finder. So this was back before, uh, you know, generic ones or, or general ones from like Orion and, and other companies, uh, Celestron and Skywatcher, et cetera, et cetera, would, would sell just a right angle finder. Um, you know, for 50 or 60 bucks. Um, but this one costs a few dollars, but it is, it is extremely old school. My university optics one, it's uh, made out of a solid piece of brass, <laughs> which oh, wow. is never light. And, and it weighs about the same. I think it weighs, I'm, I'm going to say weighs, it kind of feels like it weighs about the same as my 60 millimeter Takahashi. I think, I think legit, legit with the finer bracket it came with, I'm pretty sure it weighs about two and a half pounds or close to it and, and my tack weighs about three so that's uh, it's it's in sort of the same weight class but it's just a finder so when i go to put that on a scope of course it uh, causes a lot of balance issues like i used to have it on a daub it wasn't too bad but it, it still wasn't uh, wasn't the best there but um so the advantages of of these uh, right angle and incorrect image finders is that uh 
you don't kind of have to uh, sort of sight along the tube. Uh, so if you're looking up high in the sky, you don't have to kind of get way down and underneath your sort of tripod and, and whatever. You can kind of just sort of move over from, from your eyepiece. And then uh, if it's right angle and correct image, what you can do is, uh, is more easily go back and, and forth from, uh, from the star charts. Um, so anyway, but there's, there's a variety of ones out there. Um, some of the leading ones are, are more customized or expensive ones are like Stellar View and uh, Bader uh, have some like 50 and 60 millimeter ones. But they come in, they, they tip the scales not too far off the, the original uh, university optics. They're, they're lighter, but only by, um, you know, ounces, um, really. So I think the, I think the stellar view is, uh, is 20 ounces or something before you put the bracket on. And I actually have the bracket for the stellar view anyway. It's not that heavy, but you're probably getting close to 24 ounces by the time you, you bolt it on. Um, and then I think the, the baiter is, is slightly, they're almost like little telescopes, right? Mm -hmm. So for a long time, I thought I'd like to get a Borg. I, I, I own a Borg uh, five inch uh, apochromat. And, and I also own uh, a couple of these smaller Takahashi's, the 160. Um, now, let's see. So Borg make a whole pile of little optics or in the past they have, they've made a 36 ED, like, I don't know what it is, like F57 or F6 or 61 or something. And then it's F61. And then they made a 45 millimeter F71. They made a 50 millimeter Acromat that you have that's F5, I think. They made an mm -hmm. ED version of that that was 5.4. They made a 50 millimeter F10. They make a, now they, the big one they sell just mostly for astro imaging is the 55 FL, which is a four and a half, which, which is the one I kind of had always dreamed of, but, um, and even recently looking at the parts list that you have to get for that one, um, buying it new, it's over a thousand us getting it used. You'd be, you'd be doing good to cut that in two, um, which, which is getting way up there, um, for, for a find or whatever, um, and then, you know, you kind of have to go through a bit of a rigmarole to, to get it working and, uh, and, and make sure you have all the right parts and then get a mounting bracket and all this kind of, kind of stuff. So even, even apart from the cost, there's, there's a very large futz factor in getting these working. I think you've kind of, you, you enjoy that process more than I do, to be frank, Shane, you're, that's kind of like part of the hobby for you. I kind of enjoy like looking at it online, but then. You know, I just like want to go observing when it gets here. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, so so anyway, I was looking around online. I saw this. Uh, I think they're actually made by Sharpstar originally, but they're called an FMA 180 Ascar. And it's uh, a 40 millimeter F55, which I thought, well, that's kind of interesting, but there's lots of F55. Uh, little scopes out there and like your 250 is is an f5 and uh, what's unique about this one is that this 40 millimeter comes with a reducer for astro imaging but then as people were buying them reports came in that it, the reducer actually works fine for visual and it's oh. a flattener reducer that takes it to four and a half go ahead no, I was just, I just said, oh, wow. Um, I didn't know that the reducer was, uh, that you could use that visually. That That's kind of intriguing. 
Yeah, I think you you mentioned you were looking at it last year, but you know it, this is not inexpensive. It, it's in the same realm as as some of the other higher end uh, finders, like like the one from uh, Bader. But it's much much lighter. I think it's three hundred and something grams. Anyway, I, I think all told, with the bracket and the stock and all that stuff, I think it comes out to about fourteen ounces. So it's about a half dozen ounces, or just about like a can of Coke lighter than. Uh, or a can of, or a can of soda or a can of pop, as we say here in Canada. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, because you can use it with that reducer, um, you can get some pretty good wide fields. Now you can only really use uh, one and a quarter inch eyepieces with it. But when I was looking at the fifty five FL, I kind of determined that I'd probably only be able to use um, the one and a quarters with with that as well. And now some people will use. Um, uh, a flattener that you can get from telescope service over in, in Germany with the uh, 55 FL. And I just happen to own that already. So I was seriously considering getting, getting the 55 FL from, from Borg, but I just think it's uh, yeah, it, it, again, it's something where you have to mess with the spacing and, and then, and then mess with actually how you're going to, how you're going to set that up as, as a finder on your scope. Um, and it's not all the little parts are going to be pretty expensive. Whereas this Ascar already comes with all the parts and the reducer flattener. Um, so you're really uh, getting something that's all designed kind of to work together. The only thing additional that I, that I determined I need is, is, uh, is a base, like a shoe for the, uh, for the actual mounting onto the telescope, which is not uncommon to have to buy when you, you get a good finder anyway, but it's a, it's a cool lens, uh, 40 millimeter. And a lot of people, are using them for astro imaging and they seem they seem pretty good like they seem pretty decent and it's kind of like uh like sort of a bargain version uh of that borg i think they they're really all told that it's, it's going to run about less than a third of the cost more like a quarter of the cost but you know but by, by the mm-hmm. time you bought the borg and then factored in some of the other parts that you need to purchase uh this this thing really is significantly less and considering i just want it as a finder and it's such whether i went with a, a 40 millimeter or a 55 millimeter it does seem like a bit of overkill to spend too too much money uh on it so but but you have you have the uh the borg and you had actually looked at this in the time so i'm curious to hear uh about what your thoughts uh, would be there shane yeah um so first off you know i i don't think that um inch and a quarter is a is a big factor um in terms of like limiting um because with the with the 50 millimeter borg um i can put a two inch on there but with such a small telescope um the balance becomes ridiculous. Like you just cannot balance something that small. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, if you want it as a finder, uh, you need to keep it light and putting two inch stuff uh, off yeah. the back. You're just adding so much weight um, because, you know, at that yeah. fast of a focal ratio, um, you need pretty good wide field eyepieces to give you a good field that's sharp to the edge. You know, if you're using a, like, a, yeah. you know, just a cheaper lightweight one, you're probably going to lose the outer minimum 25% of the field of view. Like it'll look like seagulls. Um, so, uh, you, you know, with the, with the Borg, um, I'm just keeping it basically at inch and a quarter, uh, for probably 95% of its operation. And if you get like a decent mm-hmm. wide field eyepiece, like the Teleview Panoptic, uh, 24 millimeter, 
that still gives you a six and a half degree field of view. So like that is huge. You don't really need anything much larger than that um, for a finder. In fact, most yeah. finders come in at like five degrees, which is still a substantial field of view. Um, so, you know, yeah. first off, inch and a quarter is not really a factor in my opinion. Um, now, yes, I did look at the Asgard. Uh, it was new. It was, you know, highly adaptable to, you know, various scenarios, which intrigues me. Um, the reason why I, I went with the Borg is I had already begun going down that path. Um, I had acquired the lens cell for um, a relatively good price. Like I wouldn't say I, you know, came in well under market value, but it was, you know, it was, it was fair. Um, so because I already had the lens cell, all I really needed was like the, uh, you know, the barrel and a couple of adapters to finish it off. So it was just a matter of biding my time. Uh, to find the accessories to finish off that little telescope. Um, had I never started with mm -hmm. the Borg, I may have just went with the Ascar uh, as well. Um, but, you know, my, my goal is not to use it as a finder. Um, I prefer just red dot finders to get me into the, you know, the general field that I want. Um, but I, I mm -hmm. love the concept, <clears throat> excuse me, of these little, you know, 50 class millimeter telescopes that are, that have a, a short focal length. Uh, just because of how portable they are and how easy they are to lug around. Mm -hmm. Like, like my, my Borg 50 millimeter, I should uh, post a picture, but like, it's not much larger than a can of Coke um, or like you said, a can of yeah. soda or whatever. Um, so like if yeah. I was to fly around the world, um, I could put this in my shirt pocket uh, as a carry on and uh, you know, it would, it would fit. Yeah. Quite don't easily. do that. Yeah, don't, probably not. Don't do that. <laughs> but, Security but, will have problems yeah <laughs> yeah and, and like with the 50 millimeter again this is maybe one of the advantages of the borg is it's so easy to just unscrew that lens cell and again throw that in your carry-on bag yeah. you know the tube and focuser and all that kind of stuff can go in your actual luggage yeah. um so anyway i love these little yeah. telescopes just for like quick views and if you're like a solar uh like a solar eclipse chaser um, there's nothing better than, you know, one of these little telescopes to, to watch a solar eclipse through as well. I get a, I get a tell a story. So I do that with my uh, Takahashi 60 and, uh, this was like sort of the ultimate dream for, for an astronomy geek. I was going on a, on a trip and, uh, I just bought it. It was, it was the first trip with the, uh, with the Takahashi and I did just that. I took the uh, lens out and I put it in um, just like uh, a lens bag like you have for your camera. And so uh, I threw that in my carry-on and I put all the other, uh, like the tube and eyepieces and my little mount and everything I was gonna buy just a cheap tripod when, when I get to my location. And uh, so I go up and I'm sitting in the, in the airport waiting for my flight and, uh, and here comes like another amateur astronomer that I know. And they still like, where are you going? They were going to Iceland for not for astronomy. And I said, oh, I'm going to this place and I'm going to do some astronomy. They said, oh, you're taking a telescope. And it was like the, it was so much fun. I just said, yeah, I got my lens right here. And I pulled out a Takahashi lens right there in the airport. They were like, holy cow, you know, you're sitting here with a Takahashi in the, uh, you know, in the waiting area for your boarding. <laughs> <laughs> good good times yeah for sure for sure so uh so anyway yeah so i so i'm looking at this um 
and it's it's neat. I, I just like the fact that um, people can use it as a camera. It would be cool to get. I was thinking it would be cool. And I think some people have used cameras similar to yours on it. And I thought, well, it would be neat on nights where, you know, I, I don't use it. It wouldn't be something maybe I would use every night. And maybe you could take some shots through it. I know some other Astro imagers as well um, through the course that I teach. And uh, and then, you know, you can use it as, as a guide scope, which I never would. And then as well, use it as this little rich field or richest field telescope, which means it just gives you this huge field of view. So mm-hmm. I was actually cal- calculating that with my Pentax XW, I would get a seven and a half degree uh, true field of view. And, uh, and that's pretty good considering like a, wow. like a typical finder, like you were saying, and even some of these more expensive custom finders, you can only squeeze out maybe five and a half or six degrees because they have like internal stops and, and other things like that, that, that end up getting in, in the way. And, and then somebody calculated that, you know, under certain, certain configurations with dumping an an inexorbitable amount of money into this finder, you could squeeze 10 degrees out of it, which, which I'm I'm probably unlikely to do uh, at least in the, in the short term. But yeah, but you, you were saying, you know, like you, you prefer a red dot and um, yeah, I was, I was kind of there with you for, for, for a while. um, And I didn't use a finder for a long time. Um, The reason for kind of going back to one, now is um, some of these projects that I'm working on because they're not traditional objects in the sense that um, you know you, you kind of look them up on a star chart and you um, you know you're, you're able to kind of hunt them up and either you got the galaxy or you don't or maybe you're trying to sort out which galaxy it is or something well when I was first observing I found the finder really handy for that but kind of as mm-hmm. like a more experienced it, it didn't seem as necessary but now with uh, kind of like retracing the steps of, of web and some other uh, historical observers. Um, sometimes that, that can be really difficult to uh, determine what field you're on. And of course, you know, sometimes you're observing and, and things happen. Maybe you get cold and you're like, Oh, I got to go warm up, but geez, you know, I just spent 40 minutes <laughs> trying to figure out what field and I just got it. And now I got to drop the power and kind of go through all this rigmarole. Right. Um, and as well, like when I'm tracking, cause I have the tracking mount now and it's, it's, it is really handy. Um, but basically what I do is I star hop in the traditional way I get on the object and then it tracks. So I'm, I'm still having to go from like low power to high power more than I want. So it'd be nice just to be able to find it in, in the finder and then just not, uh, have to be swapping out, uh, eyepieces, uh, eyepieces quite as much. So. So anyway, that's that's kind of the method to my madness. It, it, it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of an extra, but I keep thinking about it. So like when I'm when I'm observing, I try to take note of the things that I'm thinking about. And maybe that's sort of the lesson in all this is that um, like kind of regardless of of what the greater astronomical community is doing, like you're, you're noticing some things with the way that, that you observe, which has led you to wanting to own uh, some some simpler eyepieces you know, simple glass as you, as you eloquently put it. And then for my own observing, one thing I'm finding is, is some, some minor frustrations in swapping eyepieces back and forth as I'm, as I'm trying to work through other projects that, that can take a lot of time to set up. And the time under the stars is like, I mean, that's the gold, right? I mean, you, you only have so much time under the stars here. So you really have to try to make the most of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So 
I'm not sure what our time is getting to be. I, I've also been looking at, at tripods. <laughs> There's another hole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So I bought the uh, Skywatcher steel tripod for around home last year. It, it, it ended up being, it ended up being a little bit heavier and in some ways a little bit better than I thought. And uh, so, so it's to go with my AZ GTI. And then I end up purchasing um, a Brillaback chair, which is a, a German company that makes these uh, for the most part, they make tripods. And over time people were buying the tripods and, and modifying them a little bit to be used with telescopes and Burlaback, um, you know, fortunately realized this. And, and, you know, it's one of those rare situations where they realized uh, a gap and an opportunity in the astronomical community where, where they could actually um, provide products and it was going to be viable for them. Like a lot of the time companies um, end up getting used by us amateurs to, to, you know, to modify their, their products for our, our purposes and they don't care, you know, so, so we're kind of just, just stuck either waiting for somebody else to come along and produce something or, or modifying their stuff or, or what. Um, but Burlaback uh, really took it to heart and they've made like a whole line of, of astronomy products from chairs to adapters, to mounts, to all kinds. And it's all, it all looks like really good stuff. I think you bought a chair and I bought a chair and, you know, it's almost yeah. like the Oprah show here, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They make great stuff. And uh, I've, you know, the acquiring a Burlaback tripod is, has been on my list of things that I would like for a long time. Uh, I just keep buying eyepieces instead, but one of these days I, I should just buy one of these tripods because uh, they are excellent. Yeah. So I've been looking at them and uh, I can get them from like, I have a favorite supplier called telescope service. And, and I don't know why, for some reason, some people report they haven't had, um, the great experiences I've had, I find their pricing is, is excellent. Their shipping is, is really good. And um, I've asked them all kinds of questions. They've got custom gear in for me and sent it over from Germany. Um, so I can't say enough positive things about telescope service. Um, but they, they also carry the, the Burlabacks. And then online, you can, you can find where a lot of people are using carbon fiber tripods. But in my research, between the carbon fiber tripods, and there's a few different brands like Gitzo or Faisal or different ones. Um, they, uh, a lot of people end up saying that they, they end up going with such a, such a large and, and heavy duty carbon fiber tripod that they're within like a pound or two at most of the Burlaback tripod that has similar specs. And that kind of makes me a little bit disappointed because the, uh, the carbon fiber ones can, can run up to two or three times the cost of, of a Burlaback tripod. Um, and then there was one individual who has some similar gear. He has the, he actually has the same scope as you, the 76. Uh, I have the 60 and, and the 100. So anybody who's talking about a 76, which sits in between is, is going to give a pretty good uh, evaluation uh, of something that I might want. And they said that they compared the Burlaback with the uh, carbon fibers and that the carbon fibers weren't, weren't quite as, um, damp. So they didn't dampen down the vibrations as quickly. So, and, and that, I think that individual said that the tripod they went with only weighed one pound more and it costs, I think it costs about $300 us and the Burlaback they were comparing it to is more like a thousand or $1,200 us. So it is a huge difference for the sake of a pound. So, I'm, I'm thinking I'm back to probably getting a, a Burlaback and now I'm just trying to figure out which, which height 
if you go with one that's 45 inches, which would be the same as my Skywatcher steel tripod, um, it has uh, quite a bit more load capacity and it's a, it's a pound lighter. However, I'm definitely stuck to dragging my chair with me everywhere, um, which isn't such a bad thing because I just bought the chair and I kind of want to use it more. But the, uh, the, the next one up has a height of, I think, 60 or 62 inches. So I'd be able to use it uh, even if I, I didn't drag a chair with me. Um, however, it doesn't quite have the same uh, dampening uh, characteristics, but, but I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit split on, uh, on which one I should get, I guess. Um, as I was saying before the podcast, I'm not buying anything for about three or four weeks here, just, uh, sort of, uh, trying to sort out some things and, and make sure that, uh, that I get, uh, you know, really what I, what I want to have for, for some observing this summer, but, you know, now's the time to, to kind of plan and, uh, make sure that we're, we're well set. We're starting to get some above zero evenings. And, uh, you know, you and I have been chatting, uh, quite ferociously at times on when to go out and, uh, and do some, some observing. I was talking to somebody in my class and, and they said that, uh, there was still quite a bit of snow, uh, out of the, the location that, that we were thinking about going to. So we we're probably wise just to, just to wait it out another, another few days, but, but definitely, uh, as, as we get into, uh, to this week, I think we're going to have some, some clear ground to go with our clear skies. Yeah. The timing is great because we're just really getting into new moon here in a week. So I, I think the way the weather forecast is looking, we're, you know, we can actually do some dark sky observing if we want, um, uh, you know, in relatively warm weather and, and, uh, not much snow around. So I'm excited for that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you know, not much else to report other than, uh, can't wait to do some observing. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, great chatting with you, Shane. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.